right. Beautiful day and a funny topic. If you've seen the subject, <laughs> it's it from bit from chit. Whatever does that mean? I'm just reminded of Sri Ramakrishna, and this works only in Bengali. Sri Ramakrishna, when he heard English, at that time the British were there in, in India, in Calcutta, and when Sri Ramakrishna heard English, he said it sounded to him like, he said in Bengali, Kishab eat meat with Kasabal. He says, it sounds like, to, to him it sounds like eat meat, something like that, you know. Anyway, uh, so where does this subject come from? What happened was a couple of, um, just a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we had this online discussion with David Chalmers, who is the head of the Mind Brain Consciousness Unit at NYU here, a leading philosopher of mind in the world today, and the person who coined the term hard problem of consciousness. Uh, so while talking about that, this, sub this came up, this phrase, um, um, it from bit, it meaning just this universe, this it, ex the you know, material universe, uh, and bit meaning information. Uh, I'll tell you where this phrase comes from originally. But anyway, the, the subject came up, it from bit, and it just struck me, well, even bit, it comes from consciousness, from an Advaitic perspective. So consciousness, chit. Um, so it from bit from chit. Chit means consciousness in Sanskrit. Pure consciousness. And David laughed aloud and he said, that's good. And uh, then I said, it sounds like a good subject for a talk. Maybe I'll do that. And he said, you should, you really should do that talk. And that's when I made up my mind to do the talk. Uh, but of course, neither I nor David coined the term it from bit. Uh, the, the, the phrase comes from one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. John Wheeler. Uh, he had a way with words. You know, he coined the term black hole. Huh? Stephen Hawking calls him the hero of the black hole story. <laughs> he coined the term quantum form. John Wheeler. And he coined the term, this uh, phrase, it from bit. Making this rather remarkable claim that... Uh, it's not that information, mind, consciousness comes from matter, rather the other way around. Uh, the material universe which we experience actually comes from bit, standing for, uh, you know, the computer science people will tell you, the, the unit of uh, information. Um, even that was coined just nearby in New Jersey, in Princeton. But uh, I don't know who, what's his, what his name was. Um, so a binary digit, bit. And we all learn about it in schools. So it from bit, he coined the term. The, what I'm going to talk about today, the first part of the presentation, which has two parts, the talk has two parts. The first part is actually based on a chapter in a book. The book is, Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story, written by Jim Holt existential detective story. Why does the world exist? It's, it was a bestseller a few years back. I mean, a book packed with cutting-edge theoretical speculations. So Jim Holt, who's a science reporter here in New York. In fact, many of the characters in today's talk are here in New York. 
David Chalmers is here in New York and Ned Block, whom I'll talk about, is here in New York and Jim Holt is here in New York. Uh, even um, Einstein was not a New Yorker, but he was in New Jersey, in Princeton. <laughs> and we are in New York. So. <laughs> so Ned Block's book, not Ned Block, sorry, Jim Holt's book has a chapter um, which is It From Bit. It's called It From Bit. And so what I'm going to say today is a quick summary and overview of that chapter, which I would highly recommend you go back to it, not just the chapter, the whole book. In that book, Jim Holt goes to um, some of the leading physicists with this question, why does this world exist? Not why a planet exists or a star exists or quarks exist. No, why does anything exist at all? Why does the universe exist at all? Not how it came into existence, not Big Bang, why at all? So this question, this is the biggest question that there can be. Why is there existence at all? So he goes to physicists with it and some of the leading physicists of the world today, including Sir Roger Penrose. He goes to mathematicians, he goes to computer scientists, he goes to philosophers, he goes to theologians, and whatever he has got, the best ideas, he packs it into that book. If you say it makes for, it'll make for dense reading, it does. But it's written in such a lucid, fast-flowing, you know, um, engaging style. You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it thoroughly. And one of the chapters is It From Bit. And I'm, I'm, the first part of my presentation is going to be a summary of that. And the second part, of course, is going to be Vedanta. <laughs> of course. Um, so Jim Holt starts off with, what is reality? I'm going to start off with a smaller question. What do you, how do you, what is reality? And Aristotle um, said, reality is basically stuff plus structure. Stuff plus structure. Uh, of course, he didn't put it that way, Aristotle. Aristotle had a, a heavyweight Greek name to go with it. It's called hylomorphism. But all it means is, whatever is real has these two aspects. There is stuff, substance, and that has some structure. And it's as simple as, here is this podium, it's real. And it has structure, look at it. it. It has a particular structure, it has a particular shape. But it also has stuff, wood. Touch wood. So the stuff is wood and it has given, it was given a particular structure and we call it a podium. If it reminds you of the Vedanta name and form, Nama Rupa, you're right. There is the absolute reality, Brahman, and then there is Nama Rupa, Maya, and that gives us this universe. You're right. It's basically the same idea. Though there are some interesting differences, uh, deep differences. The stuff itself, the substance of this in universe itself, by itself, without structure, the Greeks thought that's no good. They called it chaos. They called it chaos. The Advaitins and the Vedantins thought that's all good. That is Brahman. That is what he was singing about. Satyam Jnanam Anantam Brahma. This is chaos. From the Advaitic perspective. Once you impose the structure on it, Maya on it, and structure plus substance, Maya plus Brahman is not a problem. What is the problem is the structure, Maya, and you forget the reality behind it. You don't see the reality behind it. Then you are in trouble. Then you are inhabiting a world of dreams, of illusions. That's the problem. 
but that's not what Jim Holt says. I mean, I'm just getting sidetracked into Vedanta. <laughs> so let's get back to Jim Holt. Uh, Aristotle said, um, reality, what's reality? It's um, stuff, and you give it some structure, and that's everything that you see, the world outside, and ourselves too. Even here, it's stuff plus structure. It looks like something, and it's made of living cells and tissues and organs and so on. And that was the story we learned in school. What was this universe? We, we were taught that this universe is, um, you know, tiny bits. If you break things down, the physical things, you'll, you'll end up with tiny little bits and tinier and tinier bits of matter, like little finer and finer grains. And ultimately, you'll end up with molecules, and molecules have atoms. And uh, it seems pretty logical. So finally, atoms are the stuff of um, the universe. And as you build it up from there, structure emerges, and that's the, that's the story we learned. But very soon, even at school level, we learned not quite. Even the very stuff of this universe, atoms, are not the, not the final, it, it doesn't bottom out there. We learned very soon that it's mostly empty space. They are not little solid little grains. We talk like as if they're little billiard balls, but they are not. There's mostly empty space. And there are subatomic structures, there are subatomic particles. Uh, there are neutrons, and we all learned this in school. Uh, protons and electrons and neutrons. There's a little center of the atom, the nucleus with its protons and neutrons, and electrons buzzing around, mostly empty space. Um, if that were all, fine, all right. So instead of atoms, are you just saying there are tinier little billiard balls called, you know, the nuclei of uh, atoms, and there are even tinier little uh, um, billiard balls whirling around called electrons? But no, not even that. They again, if you investigate, science tells us there is a zoo. They call some one physicist called it a zoo of of uh, particles, tiny tiny particles called quarks. And they, are off, they come in so many different varieties. One physicist said, if I knew I, had, I would have to end up classifying these tiny particles all my life, I would have gone into biology, not physics. You know, <laughs> classification species and all that. Endless number of tinier and tinier particles are being discovered. And even more so, further, now they are talking about superstrings, which is speculative, not speculative, it is definitely a well-established uh, well theory. Those superstrings have never been uh, actually encountered in, I mean, it's beyond our capacity of our instruments. Superstrings. And if you go down to that level, so superstrings, okay, not tiny little billiard balls, but little strings. But no, not, not like that. They are not strings. It's, it's misleading. The terms are misleading. If you actually see what scientists are doing, physicists, mathematicians, it's mostly mathematics at that level. It's just, it's geometry. And in fact, Jim Holt calls it pure geometry, uh, pure mathematics, pure geometry. One, one of our, um, this, you know, the Swami um, Mahan Maharaj, the topologist, is one of India's leading topologists, is a monk. And his work, it's the topology, the geometry of shapes, but it has to do with uh, superstrings. He's working on superstrings. His work uh, has a direct bearing on superstrings, the very r deepest structure reality of this universe. Um, this reminds us of Samuel Johnson, all the way back in England, 
So when he uh, was told about Bishop Berkeley's theory, that it's not, there's no world out there, it's all in our minds. The world is idea in our minds, not a material world out there. This is in Western philosophy, this is called subjective idealism. The world is in the mind. Uh, there is no external world. He said, it's nonsense. I refute it thus. And he kicked a rock. You know, like rock outside, he kicked it. See, it's a real world. It's a rock. <laughs> if you just kick it, you feel it. I'm reminded of our uh, um, Bill Conrad. He often quotes that story. <laughs> but that was way back before the discovery of electrons and protons, I think before, even before the discovery of the atomic structure also. Now, with our idea of what, what actually constitutes that se uh, seemingly solid rock, it's mostly empty space. So somebody wrote a poem about Samuel Johnson. Kick at rocks, Sam Johnson, and break your bones. But cloudy, cloudy is the stuff of stones. <laughs> Richard Wilbur, he, wrote, he composed that poem. So what we consider to be a solid physical world out there, science is telling us. Particle physics is telling us. It is not a solid world out there. It's not even particles. See, when we go a little more deeper into it, and Jim Holt does a good job of it, when we speak about atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks, what actually scientists are talking about are bundles of properties and ways in which matter interacts with each uh, with, it, with itself. These are these are descriptions of behavior rather than actual stuff. And Jim Holt puts it very very succinctly. He says all science is doing, physics is doing. It's all structure, no stuff. Aristotle was looking for stuff and structure. It's all structure, no stuff. Galen Strawson, um, a, a philosopher in UT, Texas, he's retired now, I think. Uh, he wrote this very nice uh, piece in the New York Times, The Hard Problem of Matter. Uh, the hard, hard problem, not hard problem of consciousness. Is consciousness is obvious. You're conscious right now, aren't you conscious? Who's a zombie here? We're all conscious. <laughs> but it's matter which appears to consciousness. The world appears, you're conscious first, and then the world appears to you. Your own thoughts appear to you, your body appears to you, and we all appear to you, and the world appears to you. Matter appears to consciousness. So the question should be, not what is consciousness, but what is matter? We have already made up our minds that matter and living matter, and especially these brains, which are constituted of living matter, they somehow produce consciousness, and we are not sure how they produce consciousness, and hence, hard problem of consciousness. Galen Strawson says, no, no, no. Consciousness is obvious. The hard problem is what is matter. And, when, and he says, sort of tongue-in-cheek, the more we investigate matter, the more it is disappearing before our very eyes. Um, all structure, no stuff. Roger, Sir Roger Penrose, I think he got the Nobel Prize a couple of years back, last year, a year before last. Um, so he says, he goes even further and uses sort of radical language saying that the stuff of this universe is mathematics. The universe is mathematical structure all the way down. Um, not literally his words, another 
collab a physicist who collaborated with Roger Penrose, Tegmark, he, he uses these words. I remember as a young brahmachari, monastic novice, once I went to hear Sir Roger uh, Penrose speak. Uh, he had come to Calcutta in a program sponsored by the British Council. And some of you have met Swami Atmapriyananji, who is a particle physicist himself, a nuclear physicist. Uh, he took us, me and some of you know Shreesh Maharaj, uh, the monk. So he took us to hear um, Sir Roger Penrose speak. And I still remember, he's this very elderly, very uh, typical British gentleman uh, in his three-piece suit and a quiet innocent of modern PowerPoint and computer. He uses the, you know, some of you will remember OHP slides. Uh, when we were kids, we in school, some of the professors used to use it. Overhead transparencies. So he still uses those, or used to at least. That, that, was, uh, when I, that was more than 20 years ago, I think. So uh, he was drawing on that. I still remember clearly he drew a triangle. And the triangle was um, universe, consciousness, mathematics. And he says, we are conscious beings trying to understand it, the universe. And our understanding is pretty good in terms of mathematics. And he, says, he uses the term, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. It's something that we do, we do, human beings do mathematics, but how is it that it's able to unlock the secrets of this physical universe with such precision? Now, he says, maybe, just maybe, mathematics is very good at reading the physical universe because, because, the physical universe may be just mathematics. <laughs> so, he says, the structure of this universe is accessible to mathematics. Maybe it's just a mathematical structure. But what's the stuff? Aristotle still would have his thing, you know, stuff plus uh, structure. What's the stuff? Bertrand Russell himself is absolutely quiet on this. His analysis of matter, the book he has written, what is ultimately, you know, we, we read in physics that all matter is, you know, actually energy. It's like condensed energy. All right, so what is energy? It's matter. What's matter? It's energy. <laughs> But what's, what's energy and matter? What's the intrinsic stuff of the universe? Bertrand Russell says science has nothing to say about it. We keep quiet about it. What is it in reality? What is, what is the substance? No. Um, John Wheeler, the one who um, came up with the term it from bit, uh, in a short interview, it's available on, on YouTube also, if you look it up, just two minutes, old interview, video. He's asked about what's reality, and he says, reality consists in our observations. And it is a collection of registrations on our instruments. How, whatever reality it is, how it registers on our instruments and to us. And from that, we, that is reality to us. Beyond that, we think that there is something out there and that's being registered by our senses and our instruments. But is that so? And he says that all we can access is observations and he calls them registrations. And there may be nothing more to it than that. And this is a physicist. He's not talking about, even, let alone Vedanta or idealism or even philosophy. He's just talking about uh, physics at the most fundamental uh, level. And he's a very reputed physicist. Uh, 
I didn't know. I just knew that he had coined the term black hole. But when I read up about him, he collaborated with Einstein. He was the teacher of Richard Feynman. He came up with the term quantum foam, and things like that. So he, this, he says it's just a collection of readings. Sir, even long before him, Sir Arthur Eddington. Sir Arthur Eddington, he says, the objects, I mean, this is a direct quote, the objects that we study in physics are nothing more than the readings of the pointers on the dials of our instruments. So remember, it's long before digital instruments. So they were like these dials and the pointers clicking around there. He says, they are the readings we take from the pointers in the dials of our instruments. That's our knowledge of objects, of objective reality. Good. Then Jim Holt points out. So then we have this reality, which is understood through mathematics, except for one problem. There is one thing that doesn't fit into this scheme. What is that thing? He says that's consciousness. Consciousness cannot be de described by mathematics. Consciousness cannot be described from the outside. You feel it. All of us feel it. That's an amazing thing. It's not black holes. It's not quarks, superstrings, which is highly specialized stuff. We don't know about it. It's the scientists who know something about it. Uh, super specialized fields. Um, it's so super specialized. I remember once uh, the Swami I mentioned who does topology. He was there and some other string theorist was there. And a group of other PhDs were there in a room. I was there too. And what they were talking about, they were just scribbling mathematics all over the blackboard. And I, I didn't understand any of it. Uh, and then, you know, in India, they have the chaiwala, the, the boy who comes in with the tea, the little cups, earthen cups of tea. So he came with and gave tea to everybody, went out. And I told him, you and me, brother, we are in the same boat today. <laughs> I, I don't Then I... And uh, it, uh, it was so funny to see at the end, the, uh, this monk and that string theorist, they were writing mathematics, they're fighting actually, they're writing mathematics and the other one was erasing it and writing his own equation. This, this guy came and erased that and wrote his own equation. And then I told that, so, uh, that monk, you know, I, this is the first lecture I attended where I didn't understand anything from the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and then he told me a joke. He said, it's well known among, um, you know, PhD students in in all fields, not just um, uh, particle physics or string theory, that a, a, a PhD talk uh, has four parts. The first part, everybody in the audience, of course, it's a specialized audience. Everybody understands it. The second part of the talk is only the guide and the student candidate understands what's going on. Third part, only the student understands what he's talking about. The fourth part, even the student doesn't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> So consciousness is not something that can be captured by, um, by the mathematical description of the, of the universe. Uh, so a couple of uh, experiments, they are well known in the literature of the philosophy of mind. One is um, Jackson's Mary. And those who have read the philosophy of mind will immediately recognize. It's a thought experiment. Now the philosophers, they don't do actual experiments in, you know, physical experiments in laboratories, but they do thought experiments. You know, just think about it and try to understand, make an experiment in your mind. So the thought experiment goes like this. Mary is this woman 
who has been brought up from babyhood in a black and white environment. She has never seen color. And uh, so everything as far as possible. She lives in an underground bunker. It's not a real experiment, don't worry. Don't call 911. You have to rescue Mary. Mary. <laughs> she lives in an underground bunker and everything around her is black and white, clothes and everything, whatever. So everything as far as possible is black and white. And there is no color anywhere. But she has studied about color. So she has read up all about color, especially the color red. And she has read up all about it, about um, wavelengths, and, but all the books are in black and white. But she has read about, all about it, she knows the physics of it, the optics of it, the nervous system, how it functions. All of that she has read about. And all the you know, latest, all the textbooks, the latest scientific papers, she's read all of it. She's an expert on color, but she's never seen anything other than black and white. Now imagine, here's the experiment. Mary comes out of the bunker for the first time. And she sees a red rose. Okay, She knows she's an expert on the color red. But when she sees the red rose for the first time, here's the question. Does she have a new knowledge, a new experience for the first time? Although she has read about it, read it all, you know, thoroughly. She can give lectures and lectures on the color red. But when she sees the color red for the first time, is it a new experience for her? Yes, everyone would say, of course. That means this conscious experience is not information. You can have lots of information, but actual experience is entirely different. You say, Swami, I could have told you that. You don't have to read What nonsense. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah, we all know that. But philosophers, uh, they need much more convincing than <laughs> and scientists so. So this is a famous exper experiment, you can, uh, I mean, thought experiment, you can read about it uh, online, Jackson's Mary and the Color Red. Another more contemporary thing, Ned Block, who is one of the leading philosophers of mine, he is here at NYU, um, he gives this uh, exp experiment. We are told that the brain, with its hundreds of millions of synaptic connections between the neurons and they're firing all the time and uh, or some of the time and that connection of these live neurons active neurons that somehow generates consciousness conscious experience so the brain lots and lots of neurons billions of connections and that generates consciousness ned block says not really consider this he gives an example he says, consider the population of China. Um, so he gives an example using the population of China, but let's use for, for our purposes the population of India, which is nearly as big and is going to be bigger than China very soon. The reason he says is, imagine now everybody has a cell phone, and that's really almost true of India. So like a <laughs> billion plus people, <coughs> all connected with cell phones, and so they're connected to each other. And they are simulating a brain, like you know, billions, uh, a billion people with cell phones connected to each other and communicating with each other. And now in India, you have 5G or something. The news is there. So imagine that: a billion people with cell phones and 5G and whatnot. Now Ned Block asks this question: When they are all connected and interacting, just like a brain, one brain would, will that connected? network of cell phones will it become conscious if you give it a cup of coffee will it be able to taste the coffee and feel the heat and warmth and flavor of the coffee no it's just a billion people communicating with each other sending whatsapp messages to each other 
That's all. There is no consciousness above and beyond those people. Just the network of telephones does not become conscious. Similarly, he says, how can a network of cells, matter, material in the brain, how can it become conscious no matter how many connections you give it? So this leads to the possibility that there is consciousness which is undoubted. We all have it. Black holes and quarks and superstrings are theoretical. We may not understand all that. But we understand consciousness because we are conscious. This is something that's directly before us. We, we can check in our own experience that I'm aware. I see, I hear, I smell, I taste, I touch. And these are not equations. These are not theories. I'm getting this live experience all the time. Um, Christoph Koch, one of the leading neuroscientists, he calls it the feeling of life itself. What is consciousness? The feeling of life itself. The feeling of life itself. We have it. And it cannot be captured by um, information. It cannot be captured by mathematical equations. In that case, uh, it is quite possible that consciousness is a fundamental reality. Um, not produced by matter. It's not that information of consciousness comes from it. It may be that consciousness itself is a fundamental reality. And this, you know, is the theory of uh, what David Chalmers is propounding. It's called panpsychism, that consciousness may be everywhere. Why consciousness may be everywhere? It's like this. Go back to um, Aristotle's original uh, hypothesis, uh, original formulation of reality. What is reality? Stuff and structure. So, all, so far, all scientific investigation shows that everything is structure. But is it possible for structure to exist by itself without any substance, without any stuff? Just structure hanging in the air. Suppose I take all the wood away from this podium. Will the structure of the podium still remain? Ghostly podium? <laughs> no, it won't. It will disappear. The structure of the podium depends entirely on the stuff of the podium. There was a philosopher, T.L.S. Sprague, in, in um, England, in Oxford, I think. Um, Timothy Sprague. He was probably the only one in that generation who held on to the idea that consciousness may be the ultimate reality. Because everybody else, you know, even it's, the fashion is materialism. That matter is real and consciousness might be just a derivative. But Timothy Sprague, an Oxford philosopher, uh, he, his famous book is The Vindication of Absolute Idealism. And that's so rare, those who, are, who read up philosophy, you know that's so rare in modern philosophy, that to have a completely committed and convinced idealist in this day and age. Uh, I asked Professor Arindam Chakrabarti, who has spoken here, so he studied at Oxford, so under Sir Peter Strawson. I asked him, that, did you ever meet this philosopher, Timothy Sprague? And he said, of course, I met him, he, uh, he was a good friend to me. And I can tell you, because he knows what I like, so he said, I can tell you, he was absolutely a fan of Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> so Timothy Sprigg says, is it enough just structure, as physics might have it? He says, what, this is very beautiful, he put it, he says, what has structure must have more than just structure. Carefully listen to the sentence. What has structure must have something more than structure. Podium has structure, but it must have something more than structure, the wood itself. So what is that more than structure? If all of physics 
tells this entire universe is just mathematical structure, then what is that one thing here which must be more than structure, which is underlying that structure? What's the one thing that structure, mathematics, physics cannot capture? Consciousness. In that case, if consciousness is the stuff, if, this is the theory, if consciousness is the stuff, and Aristotle says stuff plus structure, structure is universe. If consciousness is the stuff of this, then it's immediately it comes with an amazing result that consciousness cannot just be here in us. Here is the universe. Then everywhere there must be consciousness. Because yeah. here is structure. Here is structure around you. And the stuff of that structure is consciousness. Then it must be everywhere. In every atom. In every um, quark or superstring or whatever you have. From the quasar to the blue whale to the amoeba. Uh, to living and then so-called non-living. Everywhere there must be consciousness. Consciousness must spread everywhere throughout this universe. This theory that consciousness is distributed across this universe. Fundamental reality. Ubiquitous reality. This is called panpsychism. David Chalmers here he says that if you consider the problem of consciousness long enough what is consciousness then either you will, so he's Australian just, that excuses the humor he says either uh, you will become panpsychist or you will go into administration <laughs> <laughs> and what is it about Australian philosophers David Chalmers here and that Mary experiment, if I, I, I'm not, I don't remember clearly, I think Jackson was also an Australian philosopher. And one of the leading philosophers of consciousness and mind today is this young lady from Australia, Miri Albahari, uh, who is relating Buddhism, Vedanta, and modern theories of mind and consciousness, also in Australia. Down under, we must investigate what's going on there. <laughs> So the reason David Chalmers, and so he has got these talks. If you look up TED Talks, David Chalmers, he says there, we must put forward this so-called crazy idea that consciousness may be a fundamental reality in, in everything throughout this universe. Um, Chalmers says that he finds this solution appealing because of two reasons. One, it solves the problem of experience. How are we getting experience? Because of consciousness. Because yeah. material uh, nature cannot explain experience. A living experience because of consciousness. Consciousness gives us this experience. And it, it also solves the problem of what's the ultimate reality of the universe. What is the stuff behind the structure? It must be consciousness. So this is a very elegant way. Not the normal way I had approach it through Vedanta. This is how it is being approached through a combination of neuroscience, uh, philosophy of mind, uh, and particle physics. All of it together coming around to explain this. Now, so consciousness is everywhere. Now, this has, it's not all that easy. First of all, it's speculative and there are serious problems. I'll tell you a problem, a major problem with this theory, that consciousness is everywhere. It's the stuff of the universe. And then how they're trying to solve it in, um, uh, in, in modern um, philosophy and science. And then I'll move on to the second part, and that is Vedanta. What is the problem? It's called the problem of combination. What is the problem of combination? So now we are proposing that panpsychism says all these particles of, um, you know, which form the universe, they are structured, but their substance is 
is consciousness. So what we have is this universe is formed of particles of consciousness. They are all around. And when they get together, they form minds like us. When they get together in a living brain and nervous system, they come together and give us the experience of my thought, feeling, emotion. But they are already there. This is a very elegant solution. See, if brains matter, cannot generate consciousness because you can't generate something that's not there. Yeah. From nothing, something cannot come. So if there is no consciousness at all anywhere in, in, the, in the universe, in matter, in brains, and yet somehow it emerges, how? It is more elegant to say it does exist in a proto-form. And then it emerges in the form we are familiar with, minds, thoughts, feelings, emotions. So this is a kind of thinking. Um, but then the combination problem comes up. This is a major problem in panpsychism. And I'll show you how Advaita Vedanta has a very elegant solution to this. The problem is this. If there are billions and billions of particles of consciousness, then how is it that they combine to form single minds? Your mind is full of millions of thoughts, emotions, perceptions. But how is it unified into I am thinking, remembering, I am happy, miserable, I, this one united mind. How is it possible for it all to com combine? William James, Harvard University, see how it's all connected. William James was actually a supporter of panpsychism, but only this problem he couldn't get around it. He says, he gives a very nice example. You can't combine consciousness, he says, because, consider this example. He says, suppose you gave 10 people 10 words, 10 words, separate words, 10 people, and tell them to think about that word, your word, you just think about your word, she will think about her word, that person thinks about that word, that one particular word. 10 people think about their own words. Now, if you squash those 10 people together, will it make a sentence with 10 words? No. Each mind will keep on thinking about that particular word only. Then how is it that minds form, single minds form in our mind? In our mind also there are various thoughts. How does it come together to form a single mind? How can consciousness combine to form single consciousnesses everywhere? So this problem is a big problem. And what they're trying to do, um, there's an elegant solution in Sankhya and in uh, Advaita Vedanta, I'll tell you that quickly. But before that, what they are trying to do, in, that is physicists and philosophers of mind, they are going the way of uh, quantum mechanics. So uh, the solution, Jim Holt mentions this, this is really cutting edge stuff, just not even theory, speculation. There is something called quantum entanglement, and that's not a theory, that's well known. Uh, again, I'm sounding very wise about physics. I am not. It's, I'm drawing entirely from material I uh, read in Jim Holt's book. So quantum entanglement. And we know that uh, at the quantum level there can be particles which are discrete particles by themselves and yet when they are in quantum entanglement they behave, they lose their discreteness, separateness, they behave as a single unit. And they may be separated by huge distances and yet they are acting together. You change one, the other one changes um, in correspondence. Uh, Einstein was so surprised by this, he called it spooky action. Uh, spooky action at a distance, quantum entanglement. Now, it just may be that when these particles, uh, uh, which are actually consciousness, the stuff in them, when they come together in the living brain, there is some kind of quantum entanglement and they come together to form one mind. One mind. 
so he calls it quantum psychology and it's not all that crazy because someone as eminent as sir roger penrose actually supports this he has this idea that that's how a human brain becomes a single consciousness that's it it's done from the perspective of jim holt now we'll enter into vedanta uh, and i found it very evocative that jim holt concludes his chapter it from bit um he says then what is reality and he says the best definition of reality that i found is reality is the dream of a mad philosopher <laughs> immediately if those who have studied mandukya would you would bring to your mind gaudapada who has a whole chapter on this comparing reality to dream does jim holt at all talk about advaita vedanta he does he goes to this leading american philosopher who passed away recently robert nozick robert nozick and uh, asks him about so in this entire universe what are selves what is consciousness and robert nozick says the most daring idea i can propose which will solve everything but it sounds crazy he says is the hindu idea atman is brahman <laughs> it's there in the book he says what is the self in us is also the stuff of this universe they are one reality david chamus picks up on this and he says information about this reality from the outside is physics information about this reality from the inside is experience consciousness what you are getting atman is brahman you and the universe are one reality just by the way how would this this combination problem how would vedanta fix it very easy Um, one crucial thing that i think modern philosophy of mind needs to pick up from indian philosophy not just vedanta is the distinction between consciousness and mind how we see it in vedanta is whatever you experience is an object and say yeah that's fine what's so big about it well the world you are experiencing is an object good the body you are experiencing it's an object mm, i can grant that all right maybe you're experiencing thoughts emotions ideas so the content of your thoughts what these thoughts emotions ideas if you are experiencing them they are objects by definition by definition anything that is experienced is an object that which experiences that to which objects are presented is the subject consciousness if you use this immediately you will see a deep fault line in the modern understanding of mind and consciousness because in the modern understanding of mind and consciousness if you ask a consciousness studies expert what do you study oh thoughts feelings emotions perceptions but then by from vedantic perspective what will ha- what will happen thoughts feelings emotions perceptions are objects also they are not consciousness consciousness by itself uh, is this is what is meant by pure shuddha chaitanya without objects uh, it illumines all the objects objects when consciousness comes in contact with an object you have experience it it's worth repeating what is experience see experience is important because that's our life our life is just experience what is exper- experience consciousness plus object you plus the universe that's experience our thoughts are also part of the objective universe 
Just by the way, very quickly, this explains why brain function is so closely connected to our conscious experience. Notice, our experiences keep changing. And corresponding to those changes, there are uh, clear patterns of behavior in, in the uh, neurons. And fMRI scans reveal that. That's what is being tracked by the modern science of consciousness. Your experiences and the corresponding activity in the brain. And that's why they jump to the erroneous conclusion, somehow brain is producing consciousness. Now, according to Vedanta and according to the new science of consciousness coming up, brain is not producing consciousness. Brain is providing the objects to consciousness. External world comes into this living system, like light is coming in and streaming into the eyes and then forming um, uh, images. Those are trans transferred into little bursts of electricity racing along the optic nerves to the brain centers. Somehow it is presented, we don't know how, presented to what we call the mind. There it becomes objects of vision. And consciousness gives you the experience of seeing. So, consciousness and mind are different. Okay? Remember, what's the problem? The combination problem. Now, take the mind itself, the contents of our conscious experience. In Vedanta, not just Vedanta, Sankhya, Nyaya, all the Indian philosophies, Buddhism, Jainism, one of the functions of this mind, which is object, one of the functions of this mind is called ego. Ego, in Sanskrit, ahankara, literally eye-maker. Aham, I, kara, maker. The ego, it's a function of the mind. You are not the ego. It's just a function of the mind. And what function is it? It's something so ABCD in Vedanta. Definition of ego in Vedanta. A definition of ahankara. Abhimanatmikantakkarana vritti. That function of the inner instrument. Look at the words used in Vedanta. Not mind, not you. Inner instrument. It's as much not you as your glasses which you put on, the, on your nose. Inner instrument, one function of the inner instrument is called ego. What does it do? It's an appropriating function. It's an integrative function. Whatever is going on in the mind and in the senses, the ego has one function to say, I see, I hear, I smell. Seeing is going on, hearing is going on, smelling is going on, thinking is going on, remembering, desiring, hating, loving, hating is going on. Um, all is going on. But I integrates all of that into I love, I hate. I remember, I enjoy, I suffer, I see, hear, smell, taste, touch. It's all integrated by one function of the mind and that's also a function of the mind. It's not you. You are consciousness which illumines the activity of the ego and inactivity of the ego. In deep sleep, ego disappears. Deep sleep, when you fall asleep, ego disappears. Consciousness does not disappear according to uh, Vedanta. In deep concentration, Positive psychology has shown this. When you are in the flow state, in, in continuous, con you know, in intense concentration, the feeling of ego disappears. Why does it disappear? Because it's the same instrument which is focusing. It has a limited bandwidth. If it spares bandwidth for the ego, it will not be able to focus completely. Ego is set aside and you focus on a game of tennis, in a neurosurgery, um, something that's delicate and requires all of your attention. You forget the ego for the time being. Are you unconscious then? I hope not. <laughs> huh? Brain surgeon doing this and becomes unconscious. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, you are most conscious then. So consciousness is what you are and everything else is an object. When consciousness runs up against an object, I'm using these terms, it gives you experience. 
the philosopher Arindam Chakravarti gives a nice definition of an object. Anything that objects to consciousness is an object. <laughs> so there is consciousness, but no experience, just light spreading all over like that. Then an object comes, yeah, and then you have an experience. You know, right here, um, th this space here, it's full of light, but you can't see it. It just looks like empty space. But notice when I bring an object into it, how it glows. It glows here. Why does it glow here? Has it, has my, is my hand producing light? No. There's light here. And you move my hand, it doesn't seem like light. It's full of light here. The moment I bring my hand, you see how it shines. Similarly, consciousness is ubiquitous, universal. When an object arises in consciousness, then you have an experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or thinking, remembering, desiring. So everywhere, this is the solution of the, the uh, problem of combination. Why, how does all um, the mental activities, how are they coordinated into one mind? By the ego. Beyond this mind, however, is consciousness. You. And is the consciousness one consciousness? I will not go into that. That's the Sankhya versus Advaita debate. And they show how consciousness is also one consciousness. So in everything there is consciousness. This is the sort of cutting edge of philosophical thinking supported by at least some reputed scientists you know, in their scientific speculations, not yet theories. But pretty theoretically it, it, it seems uh, like some kind of a satisfactory solution to the problem. This is where it ends today. The latest thinking of leading minds of physicists like Penrose and philosophers like David Chalmers, Ned Bloch and others. Um, Ned Bloch I won't include there because he doesn't go so far. But David Chalmers does. Where this ends, Vedanta picks up. Vedanta just begins there. In the Bhagavad Gita, I was just thinking, just a couple of days back we were studying in the ninth chapter. Krishna says, I pervade this entire universe as consciousness. I am in everything as consciousness. I said, really? Krishna says that? Yes. Ninth chapter, fourth verse. Maya tatamidam sarvam jagad avyakta murtina. I pervade this universe in my unmanifest form which is pure awareness, pure consciousness. Somebody might say, Swami, you, he didn't say pure consciousness, you are introducing that just to make it fit with your uh, it from bit from chit talk. No, I am not uh, giving this interpretation. Go back to the ancient commentaries, Shankaracharya and others, they give exactly this interpretation. What is the unmanifest form Krishna is talking about? Pure consciousness. Yeah. Chit. As chit, I pervade this entire universe. In everything I am, Krishna says, as consciousness. Krishna says as consciousness. You are consciousness. So you pervade the entire universe as consciousness. You seem localized in this body and mind because it comes together as a mind here. Otherwise you are everywhere. Everything that you see is, in, is um, you are there. But then Krishna says this is just the beginning. It will go to th two more stages. Go well beyond uh, our modern understanding or even theorizing about consciousness. Next line, in that very verse, he says, so I pervade everything as consciousness, I am in everything as consciousness. And next line, in that same verse, he says, not really. Matsthani sarvabhutani na teshu aham avasthitaha na aham avasthitaha I pervade, I am in all beings. And then he says, not really. 
Actually, all beings are in me. I am not in them. What does that mean? Here he is saying something, making, making a tremendous statement. It's not that there is a physical universe out there and then consciousness comes and enters everything. Not that there is a little Krishna sitting in every quark and <laughs> superstring. No. Actually, consciousness is the only reality. And this makes sense from the stuff and structure idea of Aristotle. Consciousness is the only substance, is the only reality in which the universe appears. Not that the universe is there and consciousness enters into it. Is it true that there is a podium and then wood has been poured into it? Is it, is it true that there is a wave in the Atlantic Ocean out there and then it's filled with water, stuffed with water? No. Which is a better way of putting it? Is there water in the waves or are waves in water? Waves in the ocean are in water. In the same way, this podium is in wood. It sounds a strange way of putting it. We say there is wood in this podium. But actually the podium is a structure imposed upon wood. There is a block of wood and you impose a structure upon it and call it a podium. The podium is in wood. It's an odd way of speaking. But this was well known in, um, in ancient Indian theories of causality. The effect exists in the cause. It's not that there is clay in the pot. The pot is in clay. It's not that there's a necklace, there's gold in the necklace. It, the necklace is in gold. It's not that uh, there is this uh, cloth in uh, threads. Uh, there are threads in this cloth. We, we'll say that there are threads in this cloth. No, the cloth is in the threads. So Krishna says, not that I am in all beings, but all beings are in me and I am not in them. If you think of this podium as the structure called name podium and the structure called podium, in the structure, in the shape, is there any wood? No. Rather the shape is in the wood. Similarly, Krishna is saying, I am not in this world what, the way you would think it is. It's not that I am in, sitting inside everything and controlling everything. Rather, this world is an appearance in me. This is one step forward. The universe is an appearance in Brahman, in consciousness. But the next step is the fifth verse, the first line, is one of the most stunning reversals in the whole of the Bhagavad Gita. He says, Nachamatsthani bhutani pashyame yoga maishwaram. You know what that translates into? It translates into, he had just said, all beings, I am not in beings, all the beings are in me. Then the next line he says, none of these beings are in me. witness the magic, the glory of my, the power of my maya. What does it mean? Notice the language I used. The world, the universe is an appearance in Brahman. Stress the word appearance. Is there really a universe, is, when you say the universe is in Brahman, is Brahman like a, uh, like a bowl in which the universe has been kept? Is it like this podium on which I can put the clock? I am aware of the clock, don't worry, I will, I will not take up too much of your time. Is this podium like a, uh, is, it, is Brahman like a podium on which you can put a clock? Is Brahman like a podium on which you can put the universe? No, not in that sense. 
there is no separate reality called this universe which has emerged in Brahman. It's just like this. It's not all that weird also. If you look at this um, podium, let me ask the question. So, the stuff of this podium is wood. Good. Is the podium a distinct reality apart from this wood? You'll say no. If you take the wood away, can the podium exist? No. Is it distinct? Like the podium and the clock are distinct. You can see the clock on the podium. You can see the clock by itself and the podium by itself. These are two distinct things. But podium and, and wood, are they two distinct things? No. Can you see the podium apart from the wood? No. Can you see the wave apart from the water? No. Can you see the necklace apart from the gold? No. But can you see the wood apart from the podium? You can. The wood can exist as a log of wood. It can use, exist as wooden chips or whatever it can exist in the tree. So the wood exists by itself in relation to the podium. The podium does not exist by itself. It depends entirely on the wood to appear. Yes, the podium appears to us. We do not deny its existence as a podium. Uh, you can use the name podium. You can see the podium, the structure of the podium. And you can use it as a podium, as I am doing now. This is called Nama Rupa Vyavahara. Name, form and transaction. Name, form and transaction have another single name in Vedanta, Maya. So Nama Rupa Vyavahara is an entirely an imposition upon the reality of the universe, which is consciousness itself. This is what Krishna is saying. That I am in all beings in this universe. Step one. This is where science and philosophy of mind and quantum mechanics left us. There is, it's possible that in everything there is consciousness. And Krishna says, yes, let's take it from there. I am in everything as consciousness, as chit, pure consciousness. Second, no, I am not in everything. Everything is in me. I am consciousness, everything appears in me. Third, even more stunning, everything is not in me. I'm reminded of Vivekananda. You know, Vivekananda, he wrote this he had a poetic exchange with one of his disciples, Mary Hale, here in America. Again, New York. <laughs> and she wrote to him in poetry, I have understood what you have taught. All is God. Vivekananda wrote back, I have never taught such strange doctrine that all is God. And she said, it's exactly what you said. It's exactly what you said. I'm quoting your words. And Vivekananda said, no, what I meant was, God only is, all is not. It's not that there is a universe and somehow God has become a universe. God has not become anything. Consciousness has not become anything. Consciousness is consciousness, remains as consciousness forever. It appears as this universe. What good does it do? It gives us experience that way. There is a whole experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, doing science, doing religion, doing Vedanta, art, uh, doing good things and terrible things. All of it becomes possible when consciousness expresses itself as this universe. What good does it do to me? Well, when we forget this underlying reality and we take ourselves as I am this limited being, this one slice, tiny slice of the universe, confronted with the rest of the universe, then samsara starts for me and I get stuck. But when I see myself, and we can do that, there is whole Vedantic process, Advaita process for seeing yourself as the one consciousness. When you see that, you can still go on existing. The podium can go on existing as a podium. But you know that it is wood. The wave can go on existing for a while as a wave. But you know it's water. So when the wave form goes away, it doesn't lament. I am dying. You know? 
It realizes as water, I'm relatively immortal. I could be water in the wave, I could be water without a wave, I could be water as water vapor in the clouds, or water in a glass. I am the same water. You attain immortality, the fear of death goes away. Swami Vivekananda says, I know that I cannot die, therefore I enjoy life itself. I know that I am eternal, therefore I am not in a hurry. Anxiety goes away, fear goes away, at the deepest level. Self-seeking, the, the competition against others, trying to grab what I want, trying to avoid what I fear, you know, terror and temptation, they go away. You become a Jivan Mukta, freed while living. So this is the result of seeing the, that the it comes from the bit which comes from the chit. By the way, it from bit is of course John Wheeler, um, but it from bit from chit, I can take credit for that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I pray to Sri Sri Thakur Ma and Swamiji to bless us that with, by grace that one day we may come to see this in our lives. I'm just reminded of this little girl. She wrote her reminiscences of Swami Triguna Titananda, who was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, who was in our Vedanta Society in San Francisco in, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So she says that my mother used to take me to the Vedanta Society there at the turn of the century. And the Swami, this Indian Swami was there, Swami Triguna Titananda. I still remember in that street in San Francisco, in the office, the Swami's office facing the street. At that time, the first black and white movies were coming, very jerky little movies. So the Swami told me, you see the street out there? And she was a little girl. She said, yes. The day the street appears to you like a movie, that day you'll know you are enlightened. Mm -hmm. um, I pray that that day comes very soon and our lives become blessed. We become a blessing to ourselves and blessing to everybody else around us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Did I do the Shanti Mantra? Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu